All right, welcome to Soul Star Live, live from uh, downtown at the Tanner Community Development Corporation. Um, very excited to have my guest on this week uh, today, Brother Armand Rashidi, a.k.a. Papa Ra. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Soul Star Live. Good brother, how are you doing? Man, I am fantastic. It was a pleasure to finally get a chance to meet you in person, man. Uh, you and your queen, thank you for coming out and taking the time to be supportive of us on our initiative. I appreciate that. Right on, right on. So let's jump into it real quick for the people who may not know who you are, may not know about you. I want to know. I want to know. Uh, you know, give me, give me the details. Where did Where did Amon Rashidi grow up? You know, what, <laughs> what What was the What What was the, you know Who were the people that influenced this young man to turn into this great master right now? Uh, where you from, good brother? I'm actually from a town called Magnolia, Arkansas, um, not too far from uh, Louisville, uh, Arkansas, Rep Street, where Maya Angelou was raised. Oh, um, Therein is where the roots of poetry came from for me. I had a chance to meet her when I was a kid. And, uh, what? and then, yeah, yeah. And uh, did she stop then, by your school or something? Like, you, how did you get a chance to run into the queen? She was. Somewhere in Little Rock or somewhere, that's the big city for us in Arkansas. And okay. I, I had a chance to see her. It was something dealing with a church. And I was a kid. I was just so inspired, to, you know, to hear her do the poetry thing, you know. Yeah. And uh, from that point, you know, we read her books in Arkansas. You know, she's actually from St. Louis, but most people think because she was sent down here to stay with her grandparents for a while that she was actually from Arkansas, but she wasn't. Oh, um, really? Okay. But as a result of that, brother, you know, that inspiration, you know, we read all our books in school and I fell in love with the sister. And by the time I became an adult and got my first grant, I got a $750,000 grant in 1989 called Journey to Gang Alternative to address the issues of gangs. And I took $20,000 and I paid Miss Maya Angelou to come to be a part of a documentary that I was doing. So... Even back then, I understood the importance of radio, television, and exposure. Now, initially, now, now how old is this? No, hold on. How old is this grant getting? This first grant? What you talk about? Even back then, how old were you talking about? How old was I at the time? Yeah, I was about 24, 23, oh, okay. 24. Okay, mm -hmm. okay, yeah. yeah. By that time, I had gone to the army, had a couple kids, and you know, had come back. My wife and I were living in uh, in Dallas. Yeah. I was going through my transition of learning my history and my culture. At the time, my name was Jeffrey Howard Robinson. When I'm in Rashidi, I was Jeffrey Howard Robinson. Now, now look at me. Do I look like Jeffrey Howard Robinson? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I, you, you, I ain't going to let you skip past this. So you you went to the Army? You was you had served? Yes, sir. So, what? Give me a little bit about the background, the shift, like you to 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 go into the Army. There was, you know, what was there that attract you to that? And then you can talk a little bit about that transformation as well. Okay. Well, um, my mother and father got divorced. I guess I was about 12, 13. My mother remarried and the gentleman she remarried was in the military. So oh, wow. we moved to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. I mean, excuse me, no, not Fort Benning. We went, we moved to Fort Seal, Oklahoma. Uh, so I acclimated to being on, uh, you know, involved in the military. And mm. shortly thereafter, by the time I became a teenager, I followed a child at 16. She was 15. So we were quite young as parents. Okay. And um, by the time I got to high school, I wanted an, uh, you know, I thought I was going to be a professional athlete. So 
you know, my goal was if I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, you know, I was going to go to the military. You know, brother want to have something to fall back on or pay for my yeah. education. Yeah. I thought I was putting myself, you know, getting it together. And uh, so I actually joined the reserve unit, you know. So I joined in as a, as a reserve. And uh, eventually I didn't stay. I stayed in the reserve unit, but I ended up working for the city of Dallas. And that's where I uh, met some former Black Panthers, a city councilman named Al Lipskin, the Notre Rose, um, whose daughter I'm about to marry now. Uh, and uh, in that Khalifa son, I met some pretty powerful people, a.k.a. Charles Henderson, uh, Fahim Minka, who was a, well, the third person in charge of security for the Black Panther Party. And there was a conference called The Third Eye. And I was already reading books and learning my history. But when I went to that conference, brother, I, I ran into Azra Kwesi, Dr. Ben, um, uh, Dr. Francis Quest Wells, and uh, whoever was the most powerful you can mention, brother, Naeem Akbar. I mean, it was full of the greats, brother. Charles Finch, Dr. Charles Finch. And wow. they wow. blew my mind. And uh, wow. my transition began at that time. Man, you you listen, man. You done educated the listeners. <laughs> you done you done dropped about a a good list of uh, uh some uh reading uh some required reading so that we can get yes, up on there, man. That's righteous. So you 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 got a chance to to get on this conference. It was you said it was a conference call. Yeah, called the Third Eye, the Third Eye Conference, and. Brother, all I can say is that it just interrupted my pattern of thinking. You know, everything that I thought was being questioned at the time. Mm. Uh, and from that transition, the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted a name to reflect my history and my culture. I later learned on, later learned that I had been adopted. At least my father had adopted me. I wasn't aware of that. So as I had children, I wanted my children to have a name that reflected their culture. You know, I never heard of a Japanese name, Smith, or a Chinese name, Culpepper. So, hey, wild black man going to be Robinson, you know? Yeah. And uh, that was just my opinion. That's nothing against anybody else. Man. Um, that was the journey that I wanted. And shortly thereafter, I transitioned legally changing my name. But before I legally changed it, I restored my name psychologically. And all my family became Rashidis, and the journey began. Wow. And the first thing I did, brother, I wanted to be independent. So I quit my job. I got that grant. And uh, the rest became history. So the, the name change was after the time you served. Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and during the time you served, what were you, and you talked about the shift in your mind. Were you uh, like a, a believer and advocate for America? Or were you like, you know, were you, were you a patriotic, I guess I would say? In, well, where I came from in Magnolia, Arkansas, population at the time was about eight or 9,000 people. And the only people who lived there were black people and white people. And white people controlled most of everything that was there. And most black people actually worked for them. Uh, my father later on became the first black police officer, one of the first black police officers in that area. So okay. we moved about 36 miles away to Camden, Arkansas. And even with him being a black cop, we caught a lot of hell because, you know, if you arrested somebody white, you know, we might get brick stone through a window cross burning in the yard. Uh, so, you know, I had to do it that. And I still I didn't know anything about history now. I wow. just knew about abuse. Uh, you know, now my father didn't back down from nobody. He was a strong man, nor did my mother. But we shouldn't have to have gone through that. Uh, but eventually, um, we made a, you know, uh, I got to high school. When I got to high school, there had never been a black quarterback or a black homecoming king. We had never had a prom. That's how far back, you know, black people were in Magnolia, Arkansas. 
So I was one of the first to play as a quarterback, and then they decided they didn't want me to play. So the black players, we rebelled. I knew nothing about nothing about my history and culture, but just as a young oh, black man, we got all the black football players together, and we said, we're not going to accept this. We said, now all the white people are going to vote for 10, 11 different white girls. Let's pick one black girl and one black you know, boy, and let's all of us just vote for that one person. So I was establishing block voting, and I didn't know what block voting was, you know? And, <laughs> man. and I, I, I can send pictures later on. So I became the first black homecoming king. Uh, I became a student body president at the time. And uh, Dana Smith and myself became the first to be a homecoming king and queen. That was, a big, that was big stuff back in the day. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, I mean, that was 82. You would have thought, you know, we'd have been further on down the line. But That was 82? That was 82, bro. Man. That is that's wild, man. I think it's uh I think it's pretty powerful how you talked about the you, the community side, the activist side of you getting involved without any prior knowledge or information on what you were doing, but you had the idea to say, hey, let's go ahead and let's pick our right. candidates <laughs> and let's pool all of our resources into the one and see if we can get a victory. And, and that's what happened. That's what's up, man. We you know what? We were young kids, we were hurt. You know, mm -hmm. I, you know, they told me that I was going to be the quarterback. We'd gone to camps. We was all excited. You know, and we thought we was going to have this great team. And a new coach came in and said, well, you know, if you want a scholarship, you know, you best be, become a defensive back or a wide receiver. And, and we took a, we, we took offense to that, man. And uh, that's we, we took steps. That is the man. That is the, you know, in this game, in that particular game, football, you know, you were trying to be a quarterback at a time where they didn't think that we were intellectual enough to be in that That's position. true. That's true. So mm -hmm. I could hear how a coach could could say, hey, man, you know, you know, this this might not be for you, man. Right. But you didn't get to play one game that season as the quarterback, but you you had prepared for it. I prepared for it. I mean, everybody knew I was I was damn good at what I was doing. And, you know, all summer long, there was another white coach who did believe in me. And he was, he was encouraging. He didn't care what they said. He, Let's go get this. You know, he was a rebel. They fired him for being a rebel. <laughs> wow. So early on in that, that time, you had kind of already gone through uh, uh, the practice of, of resistance, you know, the practice yes, of standing up for, you know, uh, righteousness, even without having the, the base of information about the knowledge of self and the knowledge of uh, the history of uh, America. I had, and, and I was a starch Christian and I'm, at seven years old. I was baptized. Everybody thought I was going to be a preacher. You know, they called me Reverend Robinson all the way through high school. You know, you know, I guess if I had a challenge or what I was, I was sexually promiscuous, but I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't curse. I was a good kid, you know. Yeah. They said got introduced to sex early, and if you do, yes, you know, what can happen? You can get yeah. somebody pregnant. That's, you know? man, that's, that's what happens for sure. Oh, man, thank you so much. If you're just joining, listening with us, this is a Brother Aman Rashidi. Uh, Papa Ra, and uh, uh, man, we just getting we just getting into the 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 get yeah. to know you side of this, man. I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting about this story that you just told me, man. I'm, I'm you got my wheels spinning over here. What now? What is your education there? Did you did, you got educated in the army, or did you get in any formal? Or did well, you yeah, I went to Henderson State after I left. Uh, I just did what a lot of other kids did. I went to. Uh, I was already got, I got a scholarship to go to Henderson, but I also 
joined the, the reserves just in case, you know, things didn't work out so I could then go to the military. Mm-hmm. So stayed at Henderson about three and a half years and then transitioned for a short period of time to the military and was able to kind of finagle my way out and got what you call an SM4 bachelor's equivalent based on what I got in college and what I got in the military. You know, they had all these government programs at the time. Yeah. When I was growing up, I made money through the CETA program. You know, people talk about government programs weren't good, but that's how I got my school clothes and all that. I worked during the summer and we got paid. Yeah. And uh, that was another program that the SM4 program that helped me with my education. Um, so you, then me and my girl, we eloped and came to Dallas. So it, se- it seems like that you, you know, with all the work that you're doing right now, is is because you were a part of some of these social programs, these these uh these programs that are really reaching out and and providing resources for people in need, and and you right. kind of just you kind of just kept that motivation <laughs> and continued on, man. That's that's righteous, man. That's right. Did you know, man? In those programs, you know, they had black men who were supervisors, and you know, I already had strong father figures. You know, I knew my grandfather, and you know, I knew my father, and later on realized that I had another man in my life who was trying to be my father. So I wasn't the person who lacked family structure. I had it. Uh, you know, after my mother and father got divorced, we struggled a little more. But the summer programs helped me buy my school clothes, made me feel like a man. My mama didn't have to buy certain things, and I had a little extra money to do things for her. Yeah, so, put, a bit, put a little bit of money in your pocket. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ain't nothing, ain't nothing like that. That's a, that's one of those real uh, uh, rites of passages that uh, yeah. that we, you know, we usually when you get a little bit of money, you're making your own money. That's that's a definite rites of passage in this situation, man. And, um, and you know what? Even when I started, I started working with. Show you how old it was. I, my first gig was ARC. Uh, Association for Retarded Citizens. So that lets you know you don't even use the word retarded anymore. Man. But I was always acclimated toward working with people. I love people. And uh, so you know, nobody expected that. Here I was, this real popular kid, homecoming queen, Mr. MHS, you know, yeah. Magnolia High School and all that. And they couldn't understand why I wanted to work with retarded kids. I just love people, man. And that's who I yeah. was. And I took my belief in God and Christianity serious. I, I did. Uh, most people thought I was going to be a preacher. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you, but you were, you were definitely exercising your faith. Yes, yeah. without question. Yeah, without question. It is. It is. Um, that's that's a journey that 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 I, I myself, I guess, I, I could definitely say I took as well. I I grew up in the church, and uh, was was on that same line. Um, and, and matter of fact, I did minister until uh twenty six years okay. ago. But uh, it's it's really. You know the, and we'll jump on it because we got a couple minutes left. But the church in itself, as a foundation for us, uh, as a social outreach arm, as a social organization, and making sure that we cover needs of of, the, of people who have resources, it is something to be able to to one receive those uh, 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 benefits and resources, and then to turn around and be able to give them. Uh, uh, and support and create supports for people. Um, there's there's such a great need for us in this society. So, uh, one thing I want to say about that is, man, that's where I learned respect. Uh, I learned about the village. We didn't call it an African village, but I lived the life to where I could walk past Miss Sterling's house, Miss Blanche's house, you know, the the Smith's house or the Macbeth's house, where if you said the wrong thing, they would chastise you. 
I could walk in anybody's house and get food if I wanted to. I lived in that type of community. Mm. That's where I learned to speak so well. I became a superintendent of school. I mean, uh, a Sunday school when I was about, you know, 10. And uh, yeah, yeah. And then I was a hell of a little young speaker because I believed in it. Yeah. Went to vacation Bible school. That was my world. Yeah. That was yeah. my, that you know, that little world that protected me. That's righteous. That's righteous. We are here having a great conversation on Soul Star Live with Brother Armand Rashidi. I'm Calvin Worthen. Man, that 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 foundation that you set, uh, that was that was pretty powerful, man. I, I know you're doing uh, a lot of work, um, and I want to jump into the the acronym uh, Wadi W A U D I. Yeah, tell me a little bit about. Tell us all a little bit about this organization. Um, and then, and then I want to jump into some of the, 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 the extending, the, the resources okay. and the that you have there. So how did this get started? Uh, and I, I see you are the executive director. Well, long for Brother Wiley is, is something that just materialized probably about four and a half years ago, right before COVID. A young lady who just first graduated from high school and was in college that I hired as a case manager, uh, Tamika, uh, and Tamika Staten. And, you know, later on, she, she came back. She was dealing with cancer, and uh, we talked about it. But prior to that, let me circle back, because prior to that, my first mission was in 1986 was to have the African-American Cultural Academy. It was oh. an African-American Academy for Boys. That was my first initiative. Wow. And this was a school? I, it was a school. My first initiative was to open up a school for boys, the African-American Cultural Academy for Boys, because I saw what had happened to me as a boy growing up. You know, I didn't even mention the many times that I got beat up by a bunch of white boys in Magnolia, Arkansas, because I was a little kid. And if I got caught leaving my grandmother's house, headed to my aunt's house, you know, I could be have my, you know, you were pretty bad, bro. And a lot of times I kept that inside because my mother was a type of woman that she was going to defend me. And I was afraid for my mother. So a lot of times I didn't tell her. Mm. So as I got older, when I got here, I invested a few dollars, me and. Uh, 10 other brothers invested $1,400 together and we bought a house. Uh, and in that house, um, we started classes and I want to do the African American Culture Academy for boys. And when doing so, you know, it later on became ICA, the Institute for Cultural Awareness, because the boys didn't come, come running in first. Adults started coming in. Yeah. And, uh, wow. and then when I started working at ICA, it later on became what we call uh, Journey to Gang Alternative because I found myself working throughout the city with kids, even though, you know, because all the people who was coming, they had kids and I just had this knack. I was still young, played football in pretty good physical condition. Yeah. So uh, we started something that, you know, we called Journey. And that was my actual first company, if you would. Uh, I got a job working for the city and I just got married. And uh, to be totally honest, the city of Dallas was the former Black Panther, Al Lipskin. You can look him up. He lived, the street is named after him now called Al Lipskin Way in Dallas. Okay. Matter of fact, the Al Lipskin Grambling Game is named after Al Lipskin. Uh -huh. uh, he and another young female named uh, Diane Ragsdale, who was a revolutionary sister that was on the council. Mm -hmm. So they hired people in the community that was activists uh, to work for the city of Dallas uh, for the crime prevention program. And we acted as liaison between the police department and the community because there were conflicts going on. And because I was the youngest, I was always working with the youth. Okay. And uh, they sent me to this camp to work with this this, this white billionaire, uh, millionaire. And every year he would do a camp. And I went there and uh, 
he and I didn't get along at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was decently outspoken and, you know, call him a racist a couple of times, you know, you know, it was what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even though we didn't get along, he saw my skill sets. We're working with the young boys. Okay. And we got in this fierce argument. He said, well, if you're so damn good at what you do, you, you, you run it. I'll let you do it. Mm. So it was stepping two boys. And I told him, you know, all right, just get all these psychologists out the way and let me go in here and talk to my people. Mm. And I did, and I got the boys together, and he got on the phone and called the city manager. I didn't know who he was at the time. Yeah. And I'm like, it's 11 o'clock at night. Who is this white dude who can pick up the phone, call the city manager at 1130 and say, I got one of your employees here. I'm going to keep him for three days. Like, okay. Wow. And after he saw my skill sets there, he said, uh, this is something you look like you're pretty good at. Is this something that you could do? He said, I don't even want to do this anymore. You're right. You can identify with the culture better than I can, and I see you can. He said, give me a proposal. Write a proposal, and I want you to get it down to my office. He gave me a card. I got back home. I wrote up my proposal, and then I went down to his office, and then I saw who he was. He was the largest cool distributorship owner and the second largest in the country. Wow. And uh, that's where I got the first grant for $750,000. I didn't even have a 501c3 when I did it. So he took me <laughs> to the boys and girls. <laughs> You, look, I'm I'm almost in disbelief here, brother, because you you I mean you are epitomizing the statement. You know, we come this far by faith, because yes. I wanted to ask you, like, okay, you got the psychologist out of the way. Where are you pulling this from? Like, where are you pulling the the resources and the tools to be able to to speak and communicate and create? You know, the opportunity for them to go through their healing and create. I had a strong gift for gab and an understanding, and, and I had a strong belief in myself. And at this time, I started studying my history and my culture. Okay, so you had so this, there was a it was a period of time where you had to invest some time in yes in, in digging into history and culture for us. Around about eighty five, eighty six, I, I picked up a, you know I started reading you know Anthony brought a book, and then I read some stuff on Doctor Agbar, and then I, I started listening to, to cassette tapes. You know, I would mm. find these cassette tapes. You know, on the this black bookstore in Dallas, so brother, I just lived in this in the store buying okay. this information, you know, get this information. Right. So what, you know, I'm a young black man, 22, 23. What do you think I'm gonna do? I'm gonna tell all the young brothers who they are, what the history and their culture was, bro. Yeah. Yeah. And and they was feeling me. I didn't yeah. have no strategies, none. Wow. Other than you, other than you are a black man, this is who you are, this is not what we do. And my wow. convictions were so strong that they were willing to listen and to follow. That's man, and that what a <laughs> blessing, true. man! What a blessing! Just you know how far uh, your faith and your enthusiasm and your conviction has taken you. This is uh, that's that's a really amazing story. You mentioned Doctor Naeem Akbar. I, I I remember when I first read um, the, his book Know Thyself. Are you you familiar with that one? Very much so. Man, the images of psychological slavery, visions of man without going down the line. <laughs> Man, I, you know, just in the shifting of my own personal thoughts about myself, you know, just having him uh, open up and talk about the the multi layers of all of the body, the layers of who we are and the effect of what our what our blackness is, that what, what we are in terms of this great people who have been uh, gone through this demise and in need of, I believe in that book. There is a name change at the end of 
the book. He has a whole process like for a naming ceremony. Um, is it is that is that where for for you is that where that took place? You know the the no, it was before that. You know, I, okay. I already you know Shaka Musa Barashango is who I gravitated to because he was Doctor, he was Reverend Doctor Shaka Musa Barashango, and the church was still prominent in my mind. Got you, got you. So yeah. because yeah. he still used the church as a text, and he still used the Bible, and he and he he brought historical pieces together. It, it was something I identified with. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and that's how you know even at that conference, you know, I, I failed to mention Doctor. Um, Ivan Van Sertima was there as well. Oh, wow. And I was like, a, I ain't going to say a groupie, but, you know, I I, I followed them around, bro, wherever they went to. <laughs> and I, I, I was getting on their nerves, bro, but I, but they could see I was hungry. But the person that really opened my eyes was uh, Azra Kwesi. Okay. He was there. He did a presentation, and he used slides. He was doing slide presentation. And that shocked me. Everything he was talking about, I referenced the Bible, the history, the culture. He had documentation and visual images, mm. and it blew my mind. And, they, and he was he was right. He was going back and forth to Africa with Doc Ben. And he was like, "If you don't believe me, you come go on a trip." And I, I was sitting there beside this other lady, and I was like, "I said, I told her I said, I'm going on this trip one day." And she said, "Yeah, I, I'm going too." That lady ended up marrying him. Wow. That was ended up being his wife, and. Wow. Uh, that's but long story short, from that point on, and that that was when I went to the conference in 1989, and that's when it jumped off. Okay. I, uh, uh, my name, I made the name change. My children were born. We did it. We did it. Matter of fact, the name change. It was a community name change. Just about everybody in the community came out. I was, I was decently known in Dallas for what I was doing as a young man at the time, and uh, that transitioned me there. I quit the city. I got the grant, and I started Journey the Gang Alternative, and uh, I used that money to do a PBS special um, and was extended an invitation to my Angela. At first she said no. Okay. She didn't remember who I was as a kid, you know, but she was cool with me. And uh, the producer said, well, she said she's not going to do it. So I called her and she said, no, I don't want to do it. And I said, well, Miss Angelo, I certainly appreciate it. I'm an admirer. I said, you know what? It's probably best that you don't come. I said, because at your age, you probably can't relate to these kids anyway. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, I did. Yeah, you enticed. You enticed her. Like what? You know. What? And, uh, <laughs> at first, we was offering sixteen thousand for to be the documentary. She said my price just went up. And said she's gonna say that, young man. I'm coming. Ooh. But the price now be twenty grand. And I said, okay. That's the gift of gab. That's that gift of gab. That's that gift of gab, man. <laughs> That is all right, man. I'm, I'm, hey, that's all right. So we are Urban Dreams Incorporated. Okay. Um, that first of all, I, you, I will definitely have to give you the crown for these uh, acronyms. Acronyms. <laughs> well, actually, Tamika, Tamika, this thing was the one who came up with uh, "We Are Urban Dreams Incorporated." I just after I realized, I said, "What is that acronym?" And then when I looked at the acronym as a word, I looked it up and it meant it had a meaning to it. It was a Hebrew word that meant with the life path, we will rise. Uh, and then I saw that. I saw, I mean, this has a deeper meaning to it, you know? Okay. So uh, this was something that I said that evolved after a lot of work had happened. She had worked for me initially and she was such a strong young sister that she ended up being a case manager over about 21 strong brothers. That's how oh. powerful that young sister was. Wow. Um, by the time I had come back, you know, I know I'm jumping way ahead. She was in fourth stage cancer, and uh, and I love her. She's like my daughter, and um, 
and I was going through some things there. So she was there for me and I was there for her and we kicked it off. And uh, that's how we, you know, we are what we are now with, with Wiley. For those who get a chance to go on the website, check it out. Okay. So Wiley is a collection of programs. Give me, give us a little bit about what, what it, what it is and what it entails. Well, the whole idea was, you know, being able to shift the generation of children, you know, by changing minds. That was her concept and idea. And it was consistent with my belief system. Okay. And uh, I just took some of the programs that I was already doing earlier, Project Jams, which she had worked with me with Project Jams. She knew all my programs. Okay. She had been trained by me, so she respected me. So it wasn't a problem for us to just to jump on board together. Yeah. And our first initiative was to partner with uh, Step, uh, a program called Step. And we started, uh, I wrote a handbook for My Brother's Keeper, which was started in 2014 by Barack Obama to help young men of color transition from one life stage to another. And EJ helped me also develop the uh, video for it. We got a chance to go meet the president in 2018, right before COVID. That's what's um, and we established the first um, um, fraternal orders for boys. There hadn't been a fraternity in the high school since 1843. Mm. So we decided, we found out that 50% of boys who go to high school that are black, they, 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 uh, they drop out. And 65% who go to college, they drop out by the second year. But those who join a fraternity or a sport, almost 79 to 80% would graduate. So I'm like, well, why not create fraternities? Yeah. Uh, and create we did that through this program. You create something that's going to keep them locked in, man. There's so much yeah. involved yeah. in that kind of a, a fraternal community. You know, yeah. we we just, we need each other. We we need to lend on, lean on each other in in, in all those, uh, uh, what is the, these, PWIs, these predominantly yes, yeah, the predominantly white institutions for sure. I just, I just found that acronym. Yeah, <laughs> I was but like, you know oh, what, man? I failed to mention somewhere along because it's a lot. We don't have enough time, but along the line, you know, with me making the shift in the in the restoration of my name, I just changed my name, but restoring my name, I took a trip to to Egypt. I was remarried in the Temple of Luxor in Egypt, so I went to Aswan, <laughs> Abu Simbel, Luxor. Yes, sir. Oh. So you, that you got some photos. <laughs> oh yes, sir. You know I do. You already know I do. You know oh, I sent some to you. I sent some wow. to you. Wow. Yeah. So Ezra became, you know, uh, you know, like a big brother to me. He still is one of you know my mentor. Uh, Zaki Dean. I can't, you know, go. Zaki Dean taught me about the street, about the streets. He was a Muslim brother, and I remember him coming in my house a long time ago, and I had this image of a European person on my wall identified as Yahshua, or AKA Jesus. And he was like, you're such a wise young man. Why you got this white boy on your wall? And I hmm. kicked him out of my house. That shows you where I was psychologically at the time. Yeah, yeah, you know wow, yeah. wow. That's, yeah. man, what a shift. What a change, <laughs> what a change. Because I, I, know, I know for a lot of black folks, that is a very touchy subject. It's a, yeah. it, you know, the, the, we had been, we had been given uh, white Jesus so very early, mm -hmm. we had been, and and in, you know you said implanting this image of holiness in your mind, and and purity in your mind, um, and praying to this image. And and, right. and one of the churches I grew up in in Chicago, we had a we had a picture of a white Jesus at the front of the sanctuary, where when we did the Lord's prayer we would be asked to look at the picture during the Lord's mm. prayer. And it took, it took a, a lot 
to to for me to accept black Jesus when I when I ran into high school conversations, that's that's when the shift was happening for me. I was dialoguing with like some five percenters and some and some uh some brothers who was uh um I would get, I would guess say, you know, they were listening to like conscious rap and and uh right. and I and I had enjoyed conscious rap. So there was so much about that identity that um I had to uh I think it was Tony Browder. Um yeah. I, I think that's that his book was the one. You know, blacks in the Bible. I said, "Oh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 it does make sense." You know, I, I, I gotta, I gotta take this shift. So I know what you mean. I mean, you having to kick that brother out because you know that you, you can't talk about nobody's God. You can't. <laughs> but you know what? I, you know, obviously, it didn't take me long, but a couple of days to start reading and find out that he was telling the truth. Yeah. Um, you know that that picture was painted, commissioned by. By uh, Pope Julius II, uh, it was Michelangelo's cousin in fifteen oh five, and then you know, I didn't learn later on that he didn't get the name of so called Jesus until the Council of Nicaea in three twenty five AD. Nicaea, yeah. yeah. So yeah. a lot of these things I started to learn, and it was challenging. And here comes a guy that was supposed to be this big mega preacher coming back to the place where they called me Reverend Robinson, and now mm -hmm. named Amin Rashidi, Amin Ra, first concept of God. So instead mm -hmm. of me being easy about it i challenged the church hard i, I think i was kind of angry because i've been misguided mm. that was the wrong approach and for those who are listening to me now if you get new information you don't go and just shove it down people's throat you know yeah. that christianity from its origin wasn't shoved down my throat but it was in a way because it was pushed down my my spiritual subconscious there were lies and i didn't have anything to encounter to, to counter that lie man you your your journey is is such a unique one um, I know the kind of work that you're doing as a host of the Griot Nation, um, right. and we're very thankful for that uh, that that production, that show. Uh, it's been very powerful and informative. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about the uh, some of the other acronyms that are connected to Wildy, the Wi-Fi, and the uh, the sports. And yeah. then I, I I do want to also hear about. Uh, I want you to tell the people about what the, the work you do with the NFL, the work that you okay. have been uh, commissioned uh, just recently, even okay. uh, to get involved with. Uh, so go ahead, good brother. Let us let us know. Well, you know, uh, there are variations of things that are going on um, for for what we're doing with Wildy. It really became just a collection of all the things that we had already done in the past. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. uh, Tamika was basically, you know, helping saving my life psychologically at a time. And then I was supporting her in hers as she was dealing with the issue of cancer. You know, as I said, I love her. She's like, she's not like my daughter. I call her my daughter. I don't. And, you know, to rebuild this gave me a chance to rebound because I'd gone to New York and spent a lot of time there in New Jersey. And coming back home, you know, a lot of things happened that we don't have enough time for that. That's a whole other show just to address wow. some of the things that happened to me in DeSoto, Texas. Wow. Um, but I ended up dealing with that because my son became a professional fighter. And, uh, and in doing so, I was already working with a lot of athletes. Um, so Wi-Fi Sports was because many of the gang members that I was working with were athletes as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so later on, I evolved into what we call Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is wellness information for inspiration. I had changed my diet, obviously, along the way. And, and in changing my diet, you know, uh, I think one of the first books to deal with the diet was How to Eat to Live by Elijah Muhammad. So... When I ate that, when I ate that, when I read that, <laughs> it was a perspective. You know, it, it shifted my perspective on things. Mm. Um, 
So with the sports, I saw all these young athletes who was trying so hard to be, you know, you know, just for instance, in, in, in basketball, they say over a million brothers want to be professional basketball players. But as we well know, you know, over 35,000, you know, try to make the high school team. But out of that 35,000, I think it said it was only going to be, what, 400. Yeah. Uh, you know, so at the end of the day, you got a million brothers looking for, you know, seven jobs that last for <laughs> 400 jobs the last seven years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the same way, most of the guys were not making it when it came to football. But they were making impact with their behavior. So I began to challenge them about, you know, the things that they were doing. And I realized that athletics, there are platforms. People know who you are. So instead of you bidding down every woman that you know and talk that, you know, that, that's counterproductive to our community, not giving back to our community, yeah. I was challenging that. Um, yeah. And then I ran into Dr. Harper, another young man that I'd worked with in the past, and he actually started a group called Hope Beyond Change. Okay. He extended an invitation for me to come at first as Griot Nation to record. <clears throat> oh, okay. Okay. And so every now and then they would be talking in the sessions and 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 I would respond. And after a while, they were like, man, who is the cameraman? You know, like, <laughs> how he know so? <laughs> you, you chiming in from behind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the finally I told me they found out I was a subject matter expert dealing with violence and uh, de-escalation with youth and gang violence. Okay. So long story short, I ended up teaching social justice uh, to many of the NFL players as Dr. Harper and I went around working with 4A and 5A students. And I sure want to say big shouts out to Dr. Harper and hope he unchanged. Um, mm -hmm. I met uh, Byron Williams, who was the president of the Players Association out of Dallas. Leopard Hobley, who was the president of the Alumni Association, and so many other positive brothers who had retired. Yeah. And we got to talk to each other for the last four or five years on the road. And I decided, man, we need to get into this thing called athletics, name, image, and likeness. We saw it was shifting. Mm. And uh, and obviously, Colin Kaepernick and what happened with that. Yeah. So, you know, I later on had to show him, you know, the boys. I mean, this didn't just start, man. Yeah. I can take you back to John Carlos. We can go back to when Jim Brown and everybody met together, all the athletes, Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Uh, and Muhammad Ali, brother, he was my hero. Uh, you got a chance to meet him? I got a chance to meet him on the Army base in Fort Seal. Wow. Uh, he was doing an exhibition fight. But not just because of that, but being born in Magnolia, Arkansas, and seeing him speak to white people like he did, it, it interrupted my mm. pattern of thinking. Mm. I'd never seen that before. Um, mm. So he gave me a whole different perspective of what the athlete should be doing yeah yeah and and, it, and then obviously you know i died how we were living uh so that's where our wellness information for inspiration came along and obviously the core addiction healing experience unseen is on the show and unseen is basically a health and wellness guru and so is core addiction okay. and there's no way i could hang around them that long and not learn myself and without switching up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they became my subcontractors as I began to evolve and do this Wi-Fi thing. So you, and, you uh, did the work on yourself in terms of that 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 wellness piece. Yes. You, you were you were your first subject. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Stop eating pork, stop eating beef. We're just eating fish and chicken. And then I became more, even though I ate fish and chicken, I was still more plant-based. Started drinking much more water. Stop cooking with hydrogenated oil. Started using coconut oil, coconut water for hydration. There's a lot of things I started doing. Started, you know, getting superfoods. And I started pushing that in my family, my mom and everyone else. And slowly, I, I saw myself making an impact. Wow. And then when I started working with athletes, they come in there drinking Coke and, and sodas and honey buns. They're like, man, you're going to be an athlete. <laughs> you're going to use this body and going to put all that garbage in it, you know. 
And I didn't get a lot of resistance. Once the young brothers were told the truth, it, it wasn't hard. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't you, hard. They, they you, shifted. You do have a way of being able to uh, put that bitter pill uh, <laughs> in, into something that is digestible. Um, I could. I, I just wanted to... One of the, the my favorites is listening to you on Griot Nation, uh, reiterating and explaining, um, and so so other listeners know what the the guest and the doctors the the, the language. Yeah, you know, you you kind of create that barrier, man. That's and that's yeah. uh, 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 or that bridge rather uh, yeah. to be able to put that truth in there, man. That's that's a blessing, man. So um, uh, and then uh, sports, the that one, the 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 acronym for sports. Yeah, man. yeah. So Wi-Fi is wellness information for inspiration, and sports stands for support, progression, opportunities, resources, teamwork, and strategy. Uh, you know, because you know these brothers are, you know, that field ain't no different than the the, the cotton field. People are like, well, they getting paid a lot of money. Hell, it's still hold on, hold on, field. hold on, brother. You said that field ain't no different from the cotton field. Just getting paid a lot more money. And to getting access to the master's daughter along the way to make you feel a little bit better about yourself. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. so these are psychological accommodations that really don't accommodate anything. Mm. Uh, and you find out later on when you don't have any more money, just how productive and impactful you really were. And then when you done lost all that money, you come back to the neighborhood, you just another could use the word, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so these are, so we're talking about right now, we're talking about professional athletes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you're, so you're addressing the needs of these athletes who have walked away from the game and are and are living with some disconnect, some, some yes. struggles. Uh, uh, talk about that for me. Well, not only that, but I work with uh, some of the top high school athletes as well, as well as collegiate athletes. So people would ask me to come to talk to college students or, or football teams about history and culture. Oh, they actually come as a motivational speaker. But, you know, how I motivate them, brother. Yeah, I'm motivated yeah. by telling them about themselves, bro. Yes, yes. And it just really kind of took me on a tour. And the pro players who would be there would be enamored like, damn, man, it's cool. Man, where you get that from? Before I know it, I'd have just as many pro players and retired players want to hear what I say as much as the kids did. Oh, wow. And, and you know, and a lot of the pro players, man, I, I established a beautiful friendship with. You know, Matt Darsett now is a co-host with me on Wi-Fi Sports. You know, Matt Darsett went to a Southern and Matter of fact, only played a couple of years, went to Southern, won the championship there while he was there, then walked on to Green Bay. And in Green Bay, they I think they won the division one year. Next year, he got himself a Super Bowl ring, you know, as a mm. walk-off. So, mm. uh, and then he's he learned his history in this culture. So, uh, I'll just say this to all the athletes who may get a chance to see this, how much I do. I want them to know how much I respect them as well, you know. Yeah, that's righteous, man. That's righteous. I mean, it's uh, the knowledge itself is like the beginning of – any success that you you want to have, any success, right. the knowledge itself is where if you don't start there, you're gonna have to come back to it at That's some true. point because somebody is gonna have you uh, doing some things that you didn't, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't have your morals set, you don't have your right, your moral compass, your yeah. compass aligned, and you're gonna find yourself in a position, man. That that is a uh, that's pretty amazing. So the the work that you're doing with the open mic and the poetry piece um when you had said it like you know you, we were talking on the phone and you had mentioned it kind of in the like oh you know this it's an open mic it's a place where people can come and, and talk a little bit but the the power that is in um that type of expression 
that type yeah. of poetic expression. It is it is both a, a cultural for us and it is um, healing. It is, yeah. uh, you know, kind of a part of the process of getting the, the body and the brain. Speak a little bit about the poetry open mic sessions as well. And and the athletes are involved in this? The youth athletes are involved? Well, everybody, you know, when I go to lecture, I got known for, I did a stench in, at Harvard Graduate School when all the gang violence was going on. So everybody wanted to know about gang violence, especially during 92 through 94, because Bill Clinton said the greatest threat to, to security in America. Now, this is what Bill Clinton said. The greatest mm. threat to security in America is gang violence. So mm. young black boys is basically what he was saying. So, uh, at that time, you know, I came to the realization something really needed to be done. And then I needed to raise some more money. And Maya Angelou encouraged me because she she did poetry at all my camps when she came. Okay. So she came three times and we did one PBS special called Who Cares About Kids and the next one called Who Cares About Kids Now. No one has ever seen that because of PBS, you can't find it even on YouTube. So, but I have a copy of that. And Maya Angelou is got about 75 young Mexicans and black boys and she breaking out poetry to them. And wow. most people don't know she speaks fluent Spanish, so she's doing it in Spanish and in English. And she told me when she left, she you know she heard me do my thing, and she said, "You have a gift, use it." Yeah. And I needed to raise some money, so I put out. I was I had been writing poems. The black women were being called you know bitches, hoes. You know I ain't got to tell you about the terminology that black that was used for black women. So you know here I am with two sets of twins. Four you know I got five black daughters. Mm. You know so I'm like I'm gonna put something out. And I wrote a poem called Pretty Black Woman. And I think people liked it so much that I ended up signing with Hometown Records and later on got a record deal with with uh, CBS Records, signed with EMI. No one had ever done that before. And wow. one of my biggest hits was Battle Cry. It basically was a remix of Gil Scott's Herring, The Revolution Won't Be Televised, The Revolution Has Begun. Yeah. And I charted on Billboard and did three movie soundtracks. Uh, I mean, and Nile Rogers ended up, you know, the great Nile Rogers ended up producing my song. Yeah. Uh, along with my, my man, 100 Grand, Ezra J, but he took one song from it. Yeah. And he made a comment in in, uh, in uh, Billboard magazine that this was one of the best CDs he'd ever heard. He said, not spoken word. He Just said, CD, CD, period. I put it up against any other project mm -hmm. out. And that gave me, wow, you know, That's here now I'll say this, man. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, I continued to use it as a tool. When I lectured over at Harvard Graduate School, I would start out with, with a poem, I'd end with a poem. If I was trying to convey a point about what happened with uh, in the 60s, in the 1960s, for fear of a black revolution, J. Edgar Hoover created the Cointel Pro Solution, feed them greed, give them drugs, and tag them with colors, substitute welfare for fathers and lead them with their mothers, turn a liberation organization into a criminal gang, employ them through the drug trade, and then watch those bastards bang. Peaceful communities mm -hmm. ravaged by an undeclared war, led by a group of black gangsters who don't know who they are. See, the room nature sits atop of the revolutionary tree. They and they alone hold the title of the original G. So I just did a lesson plan just with that. Yes. You know, so I would just take phrases and, and pop them off during my presentation. And it became a part of my style of engagement. So, you know, everybody, well, I would say, oh, this dude do concert lectures. You know, he's going to lecture, but he's going to be doing that poetry. Yes. And he loved it. So the kids were there with all of this. In fact, that dude, they do the poetry, you know. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, it was the kids who did that. You know, I ended up doing so many PBS specials after that, you know. So wow. television and radio, you know, and that's how I ended up getting on the air in uh in, in Buffalo. Okay. So they were playing my music during Black History Month, and you know, I don't think I was getting paid for it, and they were using my music beds. So <laughs> I didn't trip. 
So he's like, man, he's like, I apologize. But you know what? Would you like to do a show? I said, hey, man, I never done a radio show before. And I was headed to Europe because in Europe, Pretty Black Woman had sold 200,000 copies. So oh. they would fly me to Europe to be on tour regularly. Most people didn't know that. Uh, so when I came back, I decided, hey, uh, I'm going to do this radio thing. That's righteous. That's righteous. Man, we are here with Emmy Award winning. <laughs> brother, well, I was nominated. I didn't win. I was Emmy nominated. <laughs> brother, I'm on Rashidi. Well, we are going to address uh, trauma-informed care and trauma-informed approaches just so we can uh, uh, kind of catch everybody up to speed. Um, we have a commitment. We have four commitment statements, but we got to, we talk about our first commitment statement, uh, which is to recognize anxiety in ourselves and no longer um, taking these biological responses personally. So our own anxieties, we're not going to be uh, angry with ourselves about this, but we are recognizing it and we're coming up with solutions um, and, and resources that we call self-care um, here. And so, Brother Aman Rashidi, uh, let us know about a time uh, maybe recently or whenever um, that you had experienced something that kind of caused uh, you, you to, to biologically kind of feel the anxiety, you have recognized it, and then your steps to recovery. What did you do? What was your self-care to bring yourself back to uh, to back to the balance, you know, get that homeostasis so that you don't, you're not affected as uh, much by that, that traumatic change, that, that situation there? Uh, the most traumatic, I mean, it was 2004, I'd, I'd gone, to New York or to uh, New Jersey. We had a contract with the school district uh, to be able to help young brothers and sisters who were dealing with issues with gang violence and just violence in general. We were success, you know, so successful that we won the Essence Award there in New York. And while there and having, you know, you know, we won this big high, right? Okay, so we won this real big high. And I was courted by a school district in DeSoto, Texas to come back, uh, being able to pay the same thing because I wanted to be with my family. You know, I didn't want to just still be in New York. So when I came back, I felt like I got sabotaged. It's a whole different story, you know. But I was on the news, man, constantly defending me, my music. They said my music was racist, which we knew it wasn't, you know. Mm -hmm. But there was I was really just under attack. And while that was going on, I lost my father. Right in the midst of all this negativity that was mm -hmm. going on. And, and then, you know, I was having some issues with my wife. We were having some marital issues. All this at one time, bro, at one time. And not to mention, I was working in the field where over that last 15, at least 22 years, I had buried 72 young men, you know, because I was dealing with gang violence at the highest level. I was dealing with violence all over the world, bro. There have been any major issues. I was, you know, I was dealing with de-escalation, mediating gang conflicts, and you don't know the toll it takes on you mm. until one day you're not doing it as much and you're alone. Mm -hmm. And the walls start to close down on you. And then when all this happened, you're supposed to be the big man and then seeing you on television, but nobody comes to your rescue when mm -hmm. you're being lynched on national television. So now you got to figure out how you save yourself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's when I uh, had to really do some soul searching. I, I, I became, I suffered social anxiety. I didn't want to speak anymore. You were this diagnosed? Is, you you self-diagnosed with that? I, this, this was me. I, this was me. I didn't didn't go in. Well, I went to a physician in Jersey, and that's what they were telling me I was dealing with social anxiety. I'm like, can't be. I love yeah. being in front of people. 
<laughs> I got you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you, you must be going crazy. Yeah, yeah, so I blew him off. You know, like he don't know what he's talking about, you know. Uh, but later on, I saw myself, you know, when you win an Essence Award, that's when you take off. You know, 36 from a million people have seen you win this award and all this. And I didn't want to I didn't want to be in front of anybody anymore. So I just became a recluse, bro. And uh mm. I had to start doing some self-evaluation, you know, and then uh later on in the in, you know, my, one of my daughters attempted to commit attempted suicide. And uh it's just like the whole world was falling down, bro. Um and I felt like a failure. You know, maybe I spent so much time, you know, in the world and I felt like I had uh, you know, abandoned my family in some way. And I, I felt like I was a consummate family man. I was just unhappy, man. Mm. Not to the point to where I was suicidal, but I didn't want to be a part of what I had been involved in anymore. All the work. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The very things that I felt like had given me life was was killing me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And long story short, I uh, eventually started, you know, to read more books, go to classes. And then I went on and got a certification. I met Carol Harrison a few years ago and oh, about a year and a half ago. And I, I took a certification. I'd already been dealing with behavior modification, but this gave me a little more inroads on mm -hmm. anxiety and some other things. And once I did that class, I realized there's some other things that I can do. And I realized that there were other people going through similar things. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started taking that on a roll with me as I dealt with athletes and as I was dealing with people in, in, in other circles. Um, my self-care was I faded back to my music, my poetry. Um, oh, wow. I'd gotten so much into history and culture till I had lost the essence of spirituality. There was a time when I knelt on my knees and I knew who I was praying to. Mm. But I didn't know if it was Ganun, Allah, Patah, God, and really was known by many Ooh. names. Now, now my spirituality was relegated to a history book, and that's not God, bro. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, I felt alienated from the church that had taught me to be a strong spiritual man. And then I felt alienated from the conscious community who I felt like, you know, had become. They I'm just, just going to say it. Conscious heavy, just just real. Yeah, yeah, you know, consciousness from the standpoint of, you know, almost like a hustler in a way, brother. Let me keep it 100. Not everybody was that way. Just like not every preacher is bad. Not every conscious speaker is that way, but. I felt I was being hustled by everybody at the time. Man. Mm. So mm. it's taken me about five years uh, to get to where I am right now, yeah. psychologically. Yeah. yeah. So this has helped me out a whole lot. And obviously, you know, dealing with uh, coming here as a part of the mental health and wellness experience, it has become my, um, my crusade. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah, it just yeah. not only save others, but first you need to save Armin. Yeah, you, know, you can't try to save anybody else until you, you know, you're able to save yourself. Yeah, man. What kind of what kind of um, what do you do to to keep that separation? Because I I know from my time as a minister, usually there was nobody checking in on the minister, mm. even even in the in the mm. setting where. You know, we got the, a group of ministers. It was almost taboo to show up to one of these closed door minister meetings and have uh, some sort of weakness or so, or, you know, some, hey, you know, I'm not. 
you got to have the joy of the Lord all the time. <laughs> and and it, it was almost taboo for you to yeah. feel any other emotion except for the exuberant praise and joy and elation of being saved and sanctified. What what are the the tools, the the practices? What is it that you do for Brother Armand um, that helps you kind of maintain and sustain that? Uh, for yourself, that that introspection, meditation, meditation. So when you say meditation, because I'm gonna tell you, we got listeners who gonna be watching. We don't want to just throw the word up there to the wall. Mm-hmm. When you right. say meditation, are you you're talking about um, like quiet breathing? You focusing on something? Get give us give us a, some details about what that meditation. Okay, for like. for me for me meditation first begins with isolation totally. Okay. Isolated myself from radio, from television, all the surrounding stimuli, external stimuli. Okay. So I can only hear myself. Mm. But, well, hear my own thoughts. I couldn't hear my own thoughts anymore. Um, so having that psychological isolation gave me a chance to hear my own thoughts. And I stopped playing music that had words in it. I just wanted music. And I wanted my mind and my words to be an instrument inside that body of the music. Uh, so... Maya Angelou said something to me a long time ago, you know, you know, when I, she and I had some quiet moments together and she talked about it one time in her life, music saved her. And I reached back to remembering her saying that because when I was in the church, one of the things I loved so much, brother, was music. Yeah. And that's what I started to do. And then not only that, spending a little individual time with my grandchildren individually. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So, because there's something about innocence. They hadn't been browbeaten by all the external things that are out there. They love me for being granddaddy. They don't I don't have to be no celebrity. I don't have to be, you know, you know, no nationalist, no pan-Africanist, you know, you just granddaddy. Wow. And those things and, and I and I definitely I can't go without saying core. You know, y'all know core from the core Dixon Hilling experience. Yeah. Being a part of my life. You know, uh having actual massages because muscle has memory. Uh, and those things help me out. So my meditation, man, I don't even go to bed without meditation. Even when I, after I pray and meditate, I'm turning that music on when I go to sleep at night. Yeah. I listen to it all night long to the next morning. Um, so, man. And, you know, now I don't have to have it, but now I choose to have it. Mm-hmm. It gives me my, it gives me spiritual balance. And now that I have it and I start to learn a little more about anxiety and start to learn a little more about some of the things that were my triggers, uh, I got away from those things. And then I got away from people that were toxic. Uh, sometimes you'll get people that are around you, to, they just want something from you. You know what I mean? Yeah. They never give anything back. And, and like you said, a lot of times you're always saving other people. And then when something's wrong with you, they, they think you're lazy, you tripping. Ah oh, man, he over that tripping. Talking about he depressed, man. He tripping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's crazy, man. Yeah. So in your in your meditation, so and 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 I'm just speaking for me. I I had yeah. been aware of meditative practices for a long time, but I had not tried it. And it is that getting the self to be quiet and telling the mind to to hold on just focus on the breathing what were were you good at it at first was this something that you were like okay i i know about meditation or was this something that you had to to kind of develop a practice in 
I was good at assisting others with it. I, I was using it all the way back into the 90s where I would get all the black men that was in prison. And remember, I didn't just work with every gang, but I only work with the leaders. And I called the leaders in my circle, the Moja Council, the Unity Council. Okay. And I would put a bed of music together and I would tell them to isolate yourself, even though you're sitting beside someone else, gather your own thoughts. And I would have them inhale strength. Mm. One second, two seconds, exhale pain. Mm. Only you know what that strength is and only you know what that pain is. Mm. Uh, and I would take brothers who were so violent that people just couldn't imagine when they would walk in the room, how quiet they were. And now I used to you know, tinkle with the guitar, so in tuning, you use a tuning fork. So after a while, I would take the tuning fork, because you know, you get a tuning fork, it starts to vibrate. Yeah. And then you bring another tuning fork and put it beside it before it touches what happens. It begins to vibrate too. Yeah. So no one told me this, but I would let them know while they were doing their meditation that I would be, I would engage them in some form or fashion. Don't panic, just flow with me. And they would never know and everybody would have their eyes closed, the music would be flowing, they would be breathing. And I would hit a tuning fork, I would just pick anyone, put it one right beside the right side of the ear, and I hit that tuning fork and put it on the left side of the ear. And uh, the impact was powerful. I started documenting these things. I never read about this, mm. but I realized the impact of it. And having gone to, to Egypt and studied, and I, I remember that the original instrument obviously was the drum, but the second instrument was the chorus. And the chorus was a big instrument that was big as a sarcophagus, which you now call a coffin. And you laid inside of it and you closed it and it had seven strings and had a hole for ventilation. And once you closed it shut, I would hit one of the set, one of those strings and these strings would vibrate one of your chakras. And that stimulation was the thing that helped us. So I started incorporating, listening to guitars and things that had string instruments in it. Uh, and before I did all these things, brother, I would always drink a whole lot of water. So I created a system for me. Mm. And that works for me. Uh, I don't say that it works for others, but I knew it worked for the young brothers that I was working with. Yeah. That so that powerful, man. Yeah. That is powerful. Now, I'm still learning, though. I'm still, I'm still learning, Calvin. That's why when you started talking, you saw I got quiet. I, said, I told you, I said, brother, I'm going to learn that. Yeah. 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 Anything that I'm uh, another brother that is bringing information that could be empowering. I'm reaching out for that. Matter of fact, before I leave, if, if I can get you here tomorrow, I'm here <laughs> you know, to, to find out what you've learned and some of the things that you're bringing forth. Yeah. And I appreciate you and I appreciate the energy. And I'll say this, just talking to you and Kaji today was stimulating for me, energy, energy and spiritually wise. Hadn't Ooh. seen him in a while. First yeah. now time meeting you. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that. Man, that's what that's what we about right here. This is this is the after show. This is why we do it, man. You done yeah. gave about six or seven different tools out. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I would tell you in, in in meditation, I had I had the hardest time with silence. The hardest time with silence because uh I always I felt like silence meant you know, even for myself, like I had to talk. If I'm in a room full of people and we sit in silent, I felt like I had to make the joke or engage. Mm. There was, there was, there was something awkward and 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 uncomfortable about silence for me. And so, um, I had I had never really meditated. 
before all of my practices would have been, you know, uh, uh, singing a song, you know, singing my favorite gospel song or, or uh, you know, as a as a worship leader, uh, when I was in the church, I would go into playing an instrument. But the benefits of quieting the mind and the benefits of being able to stop the busyness, because it took me a long time. There was there was no other uh, uh, obstacle like like the obstacle of quieting my own mind because I was it, I was having my own lecture going on in there. I'm running thoughts over. I'm pre-planning. I'm thinking about and just to be able to say, you know what? Even if I can get one minute, even if I can get myself one minute to practice on that breathing and to to really just focus in on just nothing around me to, to calm right. the mind. I, man, it's, but it, and I'm glad you shared that because it's, this is, it's, it doesn't, it's not easy and it's going to take work because yeah. of the, the way our society is. The mind is under constant attack. Yes. Yes. Constant attack. You know, people that just like uh, frequencies. I mean, every thought that you hear is not your own throat, you know, mm. and, and people think that no, man. You could yeah, if you if you got a dial on and you start turning, you start everything's gonna come on that dial as you turn that frequency. It's the same way with the human mind. And when I was doing music, I I, I went back to one. EJ used to put a sign on the door when we got ready to record. It would say "Respect the Silence." It gave me a whole different perspective on silence. Ooh. Because if you're silent enough, you can hear you. You're mm. not hearing you now. You, what I call, you know, we know among the I'm saying the word right because I'm learning as I go, resonation, where you constantly rehashing thoughts over and over again and you can't shut it down. Mm -hmm. uh, I needed that. You know, one time they had prescribed me some medication and I had taken it and I couldn't do it anymore. Uh, I did it for like a month. And I just stopped at one time and I was told that not to do that. Not to stop the medication. Not not right away, you know. Take your time and when you want. Oh, I did. Yeah, okay, I did it off. Yeah, I, I just stopped, and it was challenging, bro. Uh, but after about a month and a half, I was able to overcome it. I'm in probably the best place I've been psychologically. That's good to hear. Most of my life, yeah. That's, that is good to hear, man. Yeah, that's good to hear. That's why I'm so glad to be back in the bosom of the family now. That's why I say, hey, man, I want to get on back on it. And you have to remember, man, a lot of this came as a result of COVID. We went through three years watching more human beings die on the planet than we'd ever seen before. I lost my brother during that period of time. I lost my nephew to suicide. Young man, my daughter was going to marry her on Thanksgiving Day. She woke up and he was dead. I can just go on and on. This is not normal, man. That level of death is not normal. We know death is assured to happen, but in the manner of which it started to happen as a result of what was going on with COVID was not normal. Not at all. You can't know. And then we already know you're going to go through the uh, anger, the denial. You're going to go grief. through the, you know, grief. You know, we're talking about grief. Anger, excuse me, anger, denial, uh, depression, uh, I mean, bargaining, depression. And a lot of times you don't get past that depression. Now, mm. just imagine if you go through anger and denial and, and you go through uh, bargaining and depression. And before all that's over, two more people die. Mm. You never completed the process. So so you're going deeper wow. and deeper into the psychological hole. You can't lose daddy one day, then lose your brother, then lose your son-in-law. Come on, man. Yeah. And then yeah. everything that you do, the whole workforce that you know that's totally changed, what you do is totally different. Yeah, so...
All of all of those losses are the pieces of self. Mm. All of them are pieces of us. And uh, I, I also lost my brother during this COVID situation, man. My condolences. And it's it has been a challenge to not think about this thing uh, because it's it's prevalent. It stays it's staying with us. It stays with us in our minds. You can't even go into a room and have somebody cough regular no more. You know, mm. back in you know back before <laughs> this, you could you could see somebody sneeze or cough. You bless you. Like, Bless you. You gonna give them blessings, but today, <laughs> don't you cough nowhere around me because mm-hmm. it was we were so threatened by this, and that it felt like there was no control at all. Nobody knew anything, and it still feels like that. It still feels like there's not enough knowledge and information out about or any of the stuff that we just went through, and we're still right. going through in this case. So, man, I want to say thank you so much for joining us to the after show. You have been a blessing, good brother. Um, Before we uh, get get everything wrapped up, where can uh, can the listeners get to your music at and uh, uh, follow you? Uh, Are you on any of the socials? Uh, Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. It's Amin Rashidi. It's Mr. Underscore Amin Rashidi uh, on Instagram and just Amin Rashidi on uh, Facebook and you put my name in there. I'm, I'm I'm just not learning the social media thing, so I'm coming forward with that. I'm gonna get better at it. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you can go to uh, wadi.org, w-a-u-d-i.org, and learn a little more. The music is forthcoming to where you can purchase it. We haven't got it already established yet, but it's coming. Uh, I'll right. some things to you. Yeah. Right. Well, we are gonna keep up with you, good brother. I'm on Rashidi. Thank you so much. I'm Calvin Worthen. Soul Star Live is a production of Desert Soul Media, and uh, our executive producer is Kaja Brown. We appreciate him so much. Um, I look forward to uh, enjoying another conversation here with with you in the future, good brother. 